Well, good morning. Again, it's so good to see everyone here this morning. It's so great to see everyone's face. This morning, we are looking at, again, we're going to be looking at uh, Revelation 21. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 27. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 8. And last week, I asked this question to start us off. I said, what is the most beautiful thing or place that you have seen? What is the most beautiful place or thing that you have seen? Now, this week, though, the question is that I want to ask, what is it or who is it you long for the most? What is it or who is it that you long for the most? I receive a devotional in my email every morning based on Spurgeon's morning and evening. This morning, ironically, the title of the devotion is Longing for God. And the verse it pulls, the content of the devotion from is from Song of Solomon 5.8, which says, I adjure, meaning I plead with you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. In the context of the, the section of Song of Solomon, the bride hears her husband come to the door, and she is anticipating opening the door and coming in. So she gets up and she goes to the door to open the door for her husband, but finds that he is not there. He is gone. She has a longing in her heart for her husband. Her heart is sick with love for him. Let me ask you this. Are we sick in our heart for our love for Jesus? Do we have that sort of longing for our Savior and Lord, for his return? Charles Spurgeon writes this in the devotional. He says, gracious souls are never perfectly at ease, except when they are in close communion with Christ. For when they are away from Him, they lose their peace. The nearer to Him, the nearer to the perfect calm of heaven, the nearer to Him, the fuller the heart is, not only of peace, but of life. In vigor, in joy, for all these depend on a constant fellowship with Jesus. What the sun is to the day, what the moon is to the night, what the dew is to the flower, such is Jesus Christ to us. What bread is to the hungry, clothing to the naked, the shadow of a great rock to the traveler in a sun-scorched land, and we should understand that fully, such is Jesus Christ to us. And therefore, if we are not consciously one with him, we should not be surprised if our spirit cries out in the words of the song, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him, I am sick with love. That is beautiful. And in this passage that Timothy just read this morning, we read that Paul longs to be with Christ in heaven. But he also longs for the will of God in his life. And the will of God at that time was, for him, to, was to, for him to minister 
to those that he was with here on earth for a little while longer. Again, I ask, what do you long for the most? Is it the will of God in your life? Who do you long for the most? Is it Jesus Christ? Is it heaven where you will commune with him perfectly for eternity in your life? Last week we looked at the first eight verses of Revelation 21. Seeing John's vision and the coming down of the new heaven and the new earth out of the sky. Hearing the booming voice of God telling John he will dwell with his people for eternity. There will be no more problems, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. And if you haven't listened to that sermon, I I urge you to listen, not because I did a great job or anything, but the Word of God is so powerful. And to really grasp the second section of Revelation chapter 21, I urge you to listen to it. You can find it posted on our website. In our passage today, though, John describes in more detail what he saw in his vision in Revelation 21, 9 through 27. Let's read it together. And let's try to put ourselves there with John. Put ourselves in that moment with John and try to gain a clearer understanding of what it means to long for Christ. Revelation 21 starting in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And on the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. 
and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, the power of your word is amazing. We are so thankful, Lord, that you gave John this vision of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, the city of Jerusalem, where we will reside with you forever, be in fellowship with you forever. Lord, I pray that as we go through this passage this morning, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you are trying to tell us through it. Lord, that you would help me to speak these words, Lord, with the power of the Spirit, not by my own words, Lord, but these would be your words. I praise you and thank you, God, again, and I just ask you to open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We get to verse 9, and it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then in verse 10, he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. We see the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the bride of Christ, the bride who longs for her husband. We talked a bit about this last week, but Paul equates husbands and how they treat their wives as sacrificially as Jesus did for his bride. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I'm talking to you, Zane, and everyone else, by the way. <laughs> that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church, Jesus' bride. And if you are a Christian, you are a part of his bride, cleansed by the water of his word, presented to Jesus perfect, without any wrinkles or spots which if, as we get older, we gain more spots all the time, don't we? The older I get and the more I look in the mirror, I am fully aware that he is talking metaphorically about our forgiven state and not my physical appearance. Because as I get older, I have more and more wrinkles and more and more blemishes, and I look forward to the day when those are gone. Pure and holy, set apart from the world, and set for Christ. Because that's what holy means. Holy means to be set apart from the world. To live for God's standard and not the world's standard. What a wonderful picture that is. And husbands, that is a tall order to love your wife like Christ loved the church. But we are commanded to do so regardless. But the important thing for us to remember and understand about these two verses is that this city is not the church. It's not the physical bride. Jesus gave his life for the bride, 
And John is talking about a city. So this city is where all the people of God that have been redeemed dwell with the Lord and in His glory forever. The city is where we, the bride of Christ, reside. We reside inside with Him. The place Jesus said in John 14 that He was going to make a place for us. This is what John means. Verse 9 and 10 must be understood together. In verse 10 it says, John says that he was taken up to a mountain. A mountain that has to be the tallest mountain ever witnessed. Because in order to look down on the city with walls so high, it had to be a huge mountain. A huge mountain. Taller than Everest by many times. Everest is 29,000 plus. It had to be much, much higher. And then in verse 11, he says, Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The glory of God described by John can be described like a diamond. Like a diamond. But even if it is a crystal, it is the finest crystal any eyes have seen. The rarest of jewels. No flaws. Perfectly able to reflect the perfect light and the perfect glory of God. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the, 12, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the, three, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. These gates and these walls with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel and the names of the twelve apostles portray the unification of all of God's people together, both Jew and Gentile. The fulfillment of God's promise to call all His people to Himself. The church, the ecclesia, the gathering or assembly of all of God's people. Some of you might say, well, I thought Israel rejected Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus. And yes, that is true. Most of them. But not all. And I know some Jewish folks that have come to know Christ as their Savior. They become believers in Christ. Paul himself was a Jew. And he addresses this very thing in Romans 11. And this gets a little technical, so hang in there with me. In verse 25 of, verse of uh, Romans 11, it says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then we go down to verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Remember, Paul is talking to Gentiles at this particular point. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Think about that. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You should memorize that verse. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their obedience, Israel's disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient. Israel is now disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you that they also may now receive 
mercy. I know there's a lot in that. We'll get to that in a second. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And what he is saying there, the important thing for us to take away from this is that God partially hardened Israel's heart because of their disobedience to him and his laws and their unwillingness to follow him. But he never forgot them or even thought of eternally abandoning them. He made a promise to them and he chose them. He elected them to be his people, his holy nation. He did this so that we as Gentiles could come to Jesus. So we who were originally disobedient and the ones on the outside could become on the inside. Does that make sense? And then when all of the Gentiles, all of the people that God has called to himself come to him, then he will remove the hardening on Israel and they will come to Christ. They will put their faith in Jesus. And thus, all of God's people will be united together as he promised. But understand this, that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. He made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 12, 2, when, he told, when God told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. And the Lord would bless Abraham and make his name great. Then the Lord said to Abraham that he would become a blessing. Christ fulfilled God's promise to join together both Jew and Gentile together into one unified body of Christ that we see represented here in Revelation 21. It's as simple and as difficult as that. God says this, Jesus, or Paul says this, God says this through Paul in Ephesians 2, 13-22. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down in his flesh, dividing the wall of hostility. That wall of hostility that divided us has been broken down. By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. It's through the body, it's through the cross that we are able to be reconciled together. Christ is the cornerstone. So the application for this is clear, really, that God is a promise keeper. Then he cannot lie. He does not back out on his promises. We have looked over this time and time again in the summer, and again last week, that God keeps his word. Remember Romans eleven twenty nine: for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Memorize that. When you don't feel like God is with you, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Putting your full faith and trust in His eternal promises to love you and keep you and to never let anything snatch you from His hand. This is a trustworthy and true statement that will never change. 
Psalm 119.16, he says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus, while praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Purify their souls in your truth is what Jesus is saying about us right now before he was arrested and sent to his death on the cross. What beautiful words. Words we can hold on to when things get out of control, when things don't make any sense anymore. And I know that a lot of people in our church are dealing with some very difficult things right now. Just in this last week, there's been death and illness and life-changing decisions and many other things that have happened that we can't even mention. Some I don't even know. Hold on to God. He is the truth. Jesus is the way. He is the life. There is no other that can come to the Father, that can bring you to the Father. You have to go through Him. Now we go from these beautiful truths that set the foundation for where we're going, and we get to this beautiful and grand description of our new heavenly home. I don't know about you, do, do you like to tour show houses? I know in La Junta it's a little hard because there's not a lot of new construction here, but when Sherry and I lived in Denver, when we got bored, we used to do that all the time. We would go and we would tour homes that we could never afford to live in just to see how the other half lived. You know, what did that look like to live in a brand new house that had everything that you could possibly ever want? And then some, right? And projects that you didn't anticipate that now cause you to use a toaster oven instead of the stove because the floor isn't level. But that's another story. But, but this beautiful house, I'm just chatting here with them because I know something that, about their house. Anyway, we look at these beautiful houses and we get a, a picture of what it will be like where the floors are all level. You know, we don't have to worry about that. And it is beyond our imagination and its scope and its wonder. Here's the detail of our heavenly home. We find it in verses 15 through 21. And starting in 15, it says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and the walls. And the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. And what that is in, in our measurement today, that's approximately 1,400 to 1,500 miles. That's as the crow flies from La Junta to New York City, a direct flight from here to there. That is a long ways. Again, you can see how tall that mountain had to be for John to be able to see this full vision. And its height and its length and its width were all equal. 1,500 miles tall, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles long. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've wondered, you know, when I think of heaven, will it be big enough to hold everyone on the inside? One commentator I read this week said, there is enough room to hold about a quadrillion people. Now, I'm not sure how he came up with that number. I really he didn't give his equation. But the point is, heaven will be plenty big enough for everyone whom God has called to live and to live nicely. 
Experts estimate that the total number of people who have ever lived on Earth, ever lived on Earth, is between 100 and 125 billion, just to put that in perspective. There's plenty of room. We can go get more. There is room for everyone. It is time for us to share this message with others so that they too can go to this place that I'm about to describe. Verse 17, he said, he also measured its walls 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, which is about 216 feet thick. That's how thick the walls were. That's a pretty thick wall. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jason, and the twelfth amethyst. Now as we study this, and if you were to study this, you would see that there are so many different opinions as to what these stones represent. But one commentator said the one thing that we can agree on is that these paint a picture of a home that is adorned in great beauty and splendor. Jasper, a green semi-precious stone. Sapphire, a blue stone. Chalcedony, a gray or a green stone. Emerald, green. Sardonyx, a blended stone, possibly like a brownish yellow stone. Carnelian, a red semi-precious stone. Chrysolite, a yellow semi-precious stone. Beryl, a blue-green stone. Topaz, yellow or brownish. Chrysoprase, yellowish-green. Jason, blue. And amethyst, purple. How beautiful will that be when we see it? And in verse 21, he says, And the gates were twelve pearls. Each of these gates were made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. These pearls that make up the gates are not the type of pearls that you would find in a, in a mall jewelry store. Because these pearls are as tall as 200 feet tall. Imagine the oyster that produced these, these, these pearls. That is one massive oyster. And because there isn't any impurity in heaven... Because it is absolutely pure, so pure it is that the gold is like looking at glass. Remember, John is trying to explain in human terms what is indescribable in our human vocabulary. He can't do it. So glass is the closest comparison that he could find. And this type of glass in those days, any kind of pure glass that you could look through was very difficult to make and very expensive to make. And only the very wealthy had such glass. And it was nothing like the glass we take for granted now when we look out the window. This is so perfect that it was flawless. Flawless glass and the gold, pure. So pure that it looked like this flawless glass. And as we move on, we see the grandeur and the wonder of the city. 
and we become curious, or John becomes curious about an observation that he makes. He was anticipating to see something that wasn't there. And we look at this and, and, and we find that there was no temple. Verse 22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. One scholar wrote that it's not nearly as important about what John saw in this great city, but about what he didn't see. What he didn't see. Because as we know, John was Jewish. And he looked in the city as any Jew would to see the temple. Where's the church? Where's the place of worship? But he didn't see one. Why is that? Why do you think he didn't see a temple? Because there's no need for one. There's no need for one because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Jesus Christ the Son, is the temple. In Ezekiel 40-48, through 48, Ezekiel the prophet describes a new temple that was going to be built. A perfect temple that would allow Israel to worship God perfectly. And he is given a private tour of this great temple and in the last line of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 48.35, he was given the name of the city. And the name of the city was, from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. Why then would there be no temple? Because we have to remember that the temple is a place where the priests would perform the sacrifices to bring atonement for people's sins. It would be a place where only the chief high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. And only one time a year to bring atonement for the people. All of this was needed before Christ went to the cross. The reason why John does not see a temple is the fact that there doesn't need to be one. Christ is our chief high priest. Christ's sacrifice on the cross in this, the final sacrifice for sin. He is the perfect atonement. There is no need for temple worship because Jesus is the temple and He is sitting at the right hand of the Lord God Almighty. And we worship Him, the Lamb of God. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That is an amazing statement. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we've looked at this verse before. But remember what this signifies. It is finished. It is done. Jesus said that on the cross. The work is done. It's done. And Jesus sat down because as our chief high priest, he was the last final, perfect sacrifice that satisfied God's wrath for our sins. The temple priests never sat down because there was more work to do. But Jesus sat down and He rests because the work is finished. There is no need for a temple because there is no more need for sacrifice. It is done. We need to rejoice in that. Hebrews 10, 19-25 says, 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, that our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And boy, I don't know about you, but the day sure seems like it's drawing nearer and nearer all the time. It is through Christ's work on the cross that we gain access, access to the throne room of God. Therefore, there's no need because we will be in the holy presence of God and we can gaze upon His wonderful face and we will not die. Remember last week we talked about, we talked about Moses in Exodus 34. God told him that he couldn't look upon his face or he would die. We will not die we will be able to look upon the full glory of our God. In our worship gatherings on Sunday are a picture of what is to come. And so it's important for us to gather together, not because we get along with everybody, not because, you know, we agree that, not for several reasons. We talked about last week why we don't come to worship in church together. But we need to come to worship together to honor our Lord God Almighty and the sacrifice of His Son for us. And then verse 23, John writes, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. John Piper, modern-day preacher and theologian and teacher, he asked this most poignant question. He said, the critical question for our generation, for every generation, is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you've ever had on earth, and all the food you've ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the, all the, all the physical pleasures you have ever tasted, and no human conflict or no natural disasters, could you be satisfied in heaven if Christ were not there? Could you be? I hope not. Think about the question I asked earlier about the devotional I read this morning. Who do you long for? And then Piper goes on to say, Christ did not die to forgive sinners. On who, who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. And if we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. Thus, we are not a Christian.
Wow. That's pretty powerful stuff. That should give us pause, especially if we aren't sure where we stand with Christ according to Piper's challenge. But we know, those of us who are believers, that Christ is all. How could we ever want to be anywhere without Christ? Those of us who say that He is our Savior, we know, we remember what life was like without Him. Why would we ever want to go back to that? We wouldn't. The glory of God and the lamp of the Lamb is so bright and eternal that there will be no night. There'll be no need for the sun because God's glory will light our eternal home. No flickering fluorescent bulbs ever again. The purity of the light of God's glory is beyond the description of John. So I'm not going to embellish it any more than I already have. Let us just be satisfied to know that it is so. And by its light the nations will walk, he says in verse 24, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. The nations, all the nations will be represented there, just as God promised Abraham. And they will walk in the light of God's eternal and glorious light. And because there is no night, there is no dangerous predators trying to get in and enemies trying to get in while it is dark. So the gates will never have to be shut. You'll never have to lock your door. Ever. Because we'll always be daylight. But verse 27, the final verse in our passage this morning, this is where the rubber hits the road. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those who have been forgiven and cleansed by the shed blood of Jesus will be allowed to enter. If your name is not found in the book of life, you will not come in, because nothing impure or detestable to God will be allowed entrance. So, how do you become clean? How, do you, how are you allowed to enter? How do you find the truth in Christ you need in order to be invited in? By giving your life to Christ. By trusting in Him and the forgiveness of your sins by His blood shed on the cross. You must repent from your sins, your wickedness, and turn to Jesus. Trust in Him alone and not in yourself or any false promise you may believe in. Only then, only then can you answer, enter in. In Revelation 22, 6 and 7, John writes, And he said to me, Jesus said to him, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, has sent his angels to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. These words are trustworthy and true, and we can count on them. We can count on them. And Jesus said that this will take place soon and that he is coming soon. And we are the ones who will be blessed by keeping the words of this prophecy of this book, by keeping them, by believing in them, and by trying to understand them. The truth 
of the new heaven and the new earth is not just to remake of what happened in Genesis 1 and 2. It is much greater than that. It is greater because where we are going to spend our eternity is a place where all of God's people will be in community together with each other, sharing our faith stories together, bringing our worship to the Lord in one voice, in perfect unity. There will be perfect peace, perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect communication, perfect fellowship, perfect work relationships, perfect corroboration, just plain old perfection. And we will be there to the glory of our God and King. And as great as that is, there is even a greater promise for us to look forward to, and this is it. That the Lord God Almighty and the perfect Lamb of God will be dwelling there in their full glory. And we will see them as they really are. We will be able to look upon the face of the Lord and live. Our Lord reigns. He will fellowship with us and He will talk with us and He will walk with us. He will be, we will be living out the chief end of man as stated in the Westminster Short Catechism. The man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Jesus says in 22.17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And the one who hears say, Come. And the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The free gift of our salvation from Jesus. There are no words that I can say or any words that anyone can say to make this more alive to you. No matter what, these words stand for themselves. And then the final words in chapter 22 are the appropriate way to end our message this morning. Chapter 22, verses 20 through 21. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, how beautiful are these words that we have looked at these last two weeks. How wonderful it is to think about our heavenly place with you. Not just the beauty of the city, not just the beauty of, of everything that you described to John, Lord, but the fact that we, we will be able to commune with you and look upon your glory and live that we will not need to sacrifice anything ever again. And we don't now because of what you did on the cross, Lord. Let us remember, Lord, that being with you and glorifying you and enjoying you is what you want for us. And Lord, if there is someone here this morning who, who doesn't know you, has, doesn't enjoy you, hasn't given their life to you, finds themselves on the outside of the gates because their name is not in the book of life. I pray, God, that this morning, Lord, that that person would come to me and ask me, Lord, how is it that I can become a Christian this morning?
How is it that I can find my name in the Lamb's book of life? That I want to spend eternity in fellowship with my God. I praise you and thank you, Lord. And I ask for anybody here this morning as well, Lord, anyone who's here this morning who may have been with the Lord, but for some reason have been distant from Him for a while. And this has prompted them to restart the relationship with you again, Lord. I pray, God, that they too would come and see me. Lord, that they could find the forgiveness, that they could come back to you, Lord, that you have never stopped loving them, and they need to know that. And I praise you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.